When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all over the globe, world, intergalactic, international, wherever you happen to be while listening to this, you know it's Larry Charles, one half of the Game Dev Unchained podcast, and Brandon Fan gave me permission to introduce our third co-host this week. He's the only person who's read every single Goosebumps book. Mr. Brantham. Hey, what's up, Larry? Just came out of the closet. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> this is Brandon Fam. Welcome to this week's episode. I brought a special guest with me. Please welcome Rihanna Pratchett. Hello there. Hi there. Hi from the UK. Hello from America. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's early morning on voting day here in the UK. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Again. Uh, <laughs> again. What's all this again? So this is our second this is the first time. time we met. Yes, this is the first time we met. Uh second time recording this. And we want to thank you, Rihanna, for being awesome and really <laughs> cool to chat with us. Uh we're excited to talk to you again and uh it's always refreshing to talk to a professional such as yourself. So why don't you give our audience a bit about your background and resume just to Get them, uh, give them an idea of who you are. Okay, so um, I'm a writer and narrative designer. Um, uh, originally starting off uh, as a games journalist in '98, um, I, I actually started working for a women's magazine, um, which oh. is very, very unprecedented covering games reviews. I mean, I don't know anyone who started off working on, on games reviews in a women's magazine, but um, it was a, a women's magazine called Minx in the UK, and it was a little bit a little bit more edgy um, than the other magazines at the time, and I, I uh, like, I really liked it, so I sort of sent in a few bits and pieces, and I ended up getting a little bit of paid work um, writing a review of Neil Gaiman's graphic novels. That I think he had two death graphic novels out at the, at the time, Death, the High Cost of Living and Death, the Time of Your Life. And I did a little review for them. And they knew I liked games and they decided to cover games for a few issues. And that got me onto the press list of a few um, PRs and I started getting code through and I started reviewing games for them just, kind of, you know, what three little paragraphs every issue and that lasted about four issues before the, the magazine decided to redesign and become all about lipstick and boys which was you know pretty, pretty much the remit of every woman's magazine back then and um but it was enough to kind of get me as i say on, on the press uh, on the press list of, of prs um and getting code and then i met um a gentleman called daniel emery at I think it was the launch of Tomb Raider three at the the Natural History Museum, and um, it, yeah, and he he just started work on um, a magazine called PC Gear, and they and so he started giving me some some freelance review work. It just so happened that PC Zone, uh, the late great PC Zone, um, 
was looking for an editorial assistant and I applied for the job and, and got the job. And this is very, this is a very long history of, of my, um, uh, of my, uh, role in games. Um, uh, but yeah, I might as well start at the beginning and, um, yeah, it sort of went from there. So I had a, a you know, a full-time job on PC zone, you know, proper office job, um, went around the world sort of talking to, to developers and interviewing them and seeing how they put their games together. Um, you know, and had some, some great experiences there. I think in my second week in the job, I went off to Dallas with the uh, number one and number two Quake players in the UK for the for the kind of international Quake tournament, which was quite cool. Um, and I think I played a 24-hour Cossack tournament as well in oh, the basement wow. of a land cafe. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of a, 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 a crazy time, really. And then I left um, after a couple of years. So I think I really wanted a sort of pyjama-based working environment. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, and I went freelance again. I kept working for Zone and a few other places, the Sunday Times and Yahoo, just covering games reviews. And The Guardian as well, which I, I wrote for for quite a long time. And, yeah, I was asked to... Um, be a story editor on a hardcore role-playing game called Beyond Divinity, which was the sequel to Larian Studios' Divine Divinity, which I'd liked a lot when I was um, a games journalist. Games journalist, I think I was the only games journalist in the UK that really, really liked it. So I think they remembered me. And you know, a few years later, they were looking for um, a native English speaker to just help them kind of polish up their script. And they thought of me and I'd just gone freelance and it all kind of converged really well. And um, it put me off RPGs for a long time because they're just so you know, very labor intensive and, and uh, holding together all the strings. And it was only sort of um, myself and, and the guy that originally wrote the script. Uh, so it was it was, uh, it was quite a um, baptism of fire, and yeah, I, I thought, oh gosh, and I came out thinking this is this is interesting. This seems to be some kind of career, and there wasn't really many people doing games writing, and certainly sort of no one specifically doing games writing. And so I just sort of tried to get more work using the contacts I made as a journalist, trying to get more work you know, doing this and that, you know, mis um, mission dialogue, box, level dialogue, where I can get. I worked on a SpongeBob game, the Pac-Man game, um, until I got uh, Heavenly Sword uh, with Ninja Theories, which, which kind of kicked up my career a few notches. And so, so I kind of went from there, just getting um, kind of more and more projects and then sort of branching out into comics and, and um, film and TV, which actually is where more of my work is at the moment. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the kind of long history of my, of my writing so far. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, like, uh, I wonder, I mean, Larry, maybe you can put, uh, give some input on this. Like my experience with writers, at least on the game development team has always been when the game is in trouble and we actually need writers to fix the dialogue or make sense of this whole thing. And that's when I really see writers give a lot of uh depth into the game uh very late in the party like how how's your ex like yeah like a firefighter how has your experience been with that rihanna when uh with projects that you worked on well i actually coined a term for it a very long time ago called narrative paramedic which is when you have to come <laughs> come in to save the game 
Um, and I think it's now a sort of generally used uh, term in the games industry, which is quite funny. Um, but yeah, I used to um, take on gigs where, yeah, you, you were drafted in at the end to, to kind of save things. But it was just so frustrating and soul-destroying because it's like... Um, you know, you keep thinking, oh, if only I'd been employed earlier, then there wouldn't be these problems. Or, yeah. you know, maybe there'd be some different problems, but I'd at least be there to sort them out and I'd know the root cause. And um, I wouldn't just be sort of parachuted in and expected to kind of deal, you know, deal with it all. Um, but unfortunately, that's that's the way a large swathe of the industry used to work. It's not so much anymore, but you still get jobs like that mm-hmm. um, where they just have no... Um, kind of they don't really have that much respect for, for narrative and what writers do but they also sort of have have no kind of understanding of, of how writers work mm-hmm. um and that you know it, it's actually a very difficult ask to be parachuted in and, and have to sort out someone else's story that you've had no part in creating it's actually much easier to you know work on creating your own story with the developers and then fix any problems as they arise mm-hmm. uh and I think the industry is starting to change because we're getting more professional writers on board mm-hmm. um, earlier, and not just writers, but narrative designers and uh, cinematic directors, storyboard artists. Um, and, you know, the the production of story is becoming much more, um, uh, in, you know, taken much more seriously and um, done much earlier in the process than it used to be but yeah that you know all all game writers have had these these jobs where they just have to polish stuff up and it's it's really the you know one of the worst ways to use writers like it it can help i'm not saying it can't help but it's just like why didn't you get them in in the first place yeah i I almost feel bad because i know that i've seen times where i'd be working on a team and they'd be like hey here's our story and it's like two pages right and it's like yeah. <laughs> what do you what, what kind of that's like an outline you know what i mean it's, yeah it's 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 not much of a, a starting point but i always appreciate uh, a good narrative designer i worked with a really good one uh, at obsidian who you know i was so proud i like wrote these dialogue lines and i put all this effort into it for this feature that i was building for this game i was working on there and then she took it and actually like turned it into real like dialogue, like things that real people would say. And I, and when I got her draft back, I could clearly see the difference between, you know, designer and narrative designer. I was not in her ballpark, not even close. It's really good you had that experience um, because I think like, and, and could actually see it working because, um, you know, a lot of writers, what writers do is kind of invisible work kind of behind the scenes, you know, put, putting all the strings together and it's the stuff that sort of players don't see. And, mm. you know, I think writers kind of have been considered a sort of luxury because there's often the misconception that if you can write words you can write a story so you you know uh, my friend Ed Stern who's a writer over here in the UK used to say that hiring a writer was seen like hiring a feng shui consultant like you've been told it was a good idea but you didn't really understand what they did and why they did it Um, and yeah it's it's kind of the the sort of same thing with writers that writers often get hired to write someone else's story which is the most sort of frustrate which is one of my bugbears really is you're just hired to do be a secretary for someone else more or less just write write what they want you to write and it's um 
but you, you know that's it, it's really nice when people actually see that writers can be you know good at what they do and they can have space to be good at what they do and um you know writing like anything is a skill it's 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 learned we're you know writers are always learning and and kind of evolving their skills so you know it's, it's really nice to, to hear stories of when you know other people have been um you know i've really seen the benefit that the writers can bring on the ground so i i imagine that you kind of run into maybe early on right like i know that at this point in your career people wouldn't dare but let me just ask <laughs> uh, did did you get a lot of those like exposure opportunities like hey you know just come on this project it's you know we can't pay but you know it's gonna be big your name will be everywhere you know just write these 400 pages for us and not me specifically but like i always hear tales of that i think it's because i spent the early days working for um developers that i knew as a journalist so they mm -hmm. knew that i had journalist connections so they probably didn't think it was a good idea mm -hmm. to take that angle with me really <laughs> um and so yeah they're like larian and firefly are both still going um which is which is good to see and yeah so it was it was because i did sort of small work little bits early on i think i just i just chose things carefully they weren't you know big and glamorous but they they helped give me a kind of perspective on the, on the ways that different parts of the narrative are put together and so sort of i had quite a good overview by the time i got to heavenly sword um uh, and it, it, i guess it was maybe a little harder when i didn't have an agent i, I sort of got an agent round about just after tomb raider mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and before that i'd just been um doing working it out myself and, and my pay rate and things like that with with help from from the writers guild who who sort of have a, a guideline for this kind of thing um but yeah after i, I got my agent who's kind of age, agent for my writing work uh it became a lot easier and, and i didn't have you know i used him to negotiate and, and probably got a lot you know better deals because you know, writers hate asking for like more money and you know justifying their skills and things like that we kind of hate it because you know most of us are slightly introverted anyway and we don't like that sort of conflict and confrontation but it kind of needs to happen and that's why people have agents so they can do all that that hard hard work for you while you get on with the actual writing well, nice. so heavenly sword was you regarded as kind of like a major boost in your uh, game writing career. I mean, at, at, at that point, you were writing for, for games already, but definitely having Sword was a step up. Like, how was that transition to, um, a, like, a hugely budget? Because I, I remember having Sword. It was, like, one of those uh, Sony first uh, uh, preview for their console. It was, like, their premiere title. Mm. And it was awesome. It was cool. It was up in front and everything. It was a huge deal uh, for that generation. So how was that um, uh, transition and, and just the review and finally getting, being able to show it like, look what I've done. This is mine. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was, it was a tough project. Um, I really like working with Ninja Theory because you know, they, they were definitely um, a company that took story and character seriously um and my involvement came about about in a, in a few ways um i'd met i met um nina from the ninjas i think on a panel that i'd done at a conference earlier and i met to meme 
the creative director on a screenwriting course. We, we both went hmm. to um, a, a screenwriting course. Uh, David Freeman, who used to do a lot of, um, uh, you know, tried to get a lot of working games, uh, a Hollywood guy, uh, quite a long time ago maybe sort of 10 years ago now and had a book out called emotioneering in games mm-hmm. uh, but he had a, a screenwriting course uh, called beyond structure which was actually kind of quite a good helpful course i thought um, but he gathered all the games people up during lunchtime because i think he was looking for more games work and i i ended up sitting next to me and he went around you know you know asking everyone to introduce themselves and because I was a fellow writer he sort of ignored me because uh, I guess he considered to be competition and then <laughs> he didn't really know about ninja theory because they, they were still new and so he sort of ignored me as well but I knew about ninja theory because I, I read the trade press and I, I knew about um, Heavenly Sword just getting a publishing deal and how hard it had been so I, I chatted to, to me a little bit about that and then I met him um, a few months later at a little IGDA London chapter talk uh, where he was talking about how difficult it had been to get heavily sword into into um, production, mm-hmm. and I asked him, and we sort of bonded over the yeah, this kind of lunch that we'd had where we both sort of got ignored, and uh, I asked him about the right uh, about where they were with writing, and he said, oh yeah, we've just done a a writing test, and we haven't really found anyone we want, so we're going to start like a second round of writers and I'd had a few JDs and Cokes and I was feeling a little bit <laughs> kind of brave and I said oh, you know would, would you mind giving me a, a test because you know I've done a, a bit of writing work and I've worked on on these little games um you know I, I'd, I'd love to the, the chance to, to work with the ninjas and they said oh yeah sure sure and he took my details and I thought that's a laugh I'm gonna hear from him and then four months later someone from Sodi got in touch Said, um, was he riding him on like the napkin at the bar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was like, yeah, it, you know, more along those lines, definitely. And, um, uh, yeah, like, they gave me a test. I did it over my Christmas break, and uh, then I went and had like a, a it was something like a four-hour interview with the nin- mm. with the ninjas. Wow. They just kept adding adding more people to the room, and then they sort of shuffled out into the corridor and went into a huddle, which I didn't think ever really happened in the real world. Um, and then came back in and, and offered me the job. But you were, wow, you were still, you were the still there. You see them? I was I was like they went into the corridor into a huddle. Into wow, the that that is. I, mean, I could hear what they. I could just see the huddle. I couldn't. I couldn't um, hear them, but it was just, yeah, it was quite funny. But I, yeah, I, I think I spent about four hours talking about aliens and Conan, <laughs> and my knowledge of aliens and Conan has been very useful in the games industry. Hmm. Growing up in the eighties has actually been very useful. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I'm used to them being in huddles after I leave. <laughs> so it is very, I guess it's very encouraging that they liked you enough to where like, we got to talk because there are situations where I've heard like before uh, the the person interviewing for a job uh, left in the elevator, they got pulled back and say, here's, here's the deal. We've heard those before, but it, it's definitely encouraging to, I guess, because you did get the job that you see them yeah. huddling. I would be watching who's nodding or shaking their head and just remember yeah, I was that. Say, yeah. it's like you, you can, if you're that close, you can see the guys like, I don't know, man. Oh, you know, that guy. Like, the All one right. who seems like on the fence and the one who's like making an X yeah. with his hands. Like, yeah. no. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that animated. About not wanting. And then they all come back in. So you're hired, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was kind of like that, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, that's cool though. So, were, were, was there a lot of? Um, I mean, you're used to writing for games at that point, but were was it there? Was there a learning curve at for just being involved in a bigger project like that? I think yeah, there, there was. Um, it was it was interesting in the, in the fact that it was actually more of a script-led project, um, which has almost never happened ever since then. Um, so to me, we'd done a first draft script and then I was sort of doing a first draft rewrite of it. And uh, to me and Andy Circus and I were sort of locked in a room in so- at Sony for two days, um, just brainstorming everything that, that to me we'd done and everything that, that needed to be changed and lots of writing on whiteboards and things like that. And um, yeah, that was a really good experience and, and really, um, you know, quite a big challenge straight off. Um, and then, yeah, the, it, it was, it was a, it was a tough, uh, it was a tough project. Obviously we're dealing, you know, with, with, uh, you know, quite a few famous people. Um, and you know, Andy, Andy in particular was great to deal with because he had a real passion, um, you know, for what he was doing and, and real interesting games as well. And, you know, by, by the end of it, he was sort of making, you know, doing speeches and talking about making jokes about gameplay, getting in the way of our story and things like that. <laughs> um, and obviously he then went on to, to start the Imaginarium in, mm-hmm. in the UK, which sort of, um, you know, covers games and, and films. Um and so he went on to work with on on Slaved as well with the ninjas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was it it was big. I don't think it like there was a certain amount of pressure just because you know dealing with a lot of people. It's very heavily cinematic. Um, you're having to react to um, a lot of a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. Like um, Stephen Burkoff with Flying Fox, uh, he did something completely different to what was written. Mm-hmm. And, or he he sort of let let's say improvised. Let's be generous and say improvised on on kind of what was there. And so I then we, we sort of changed the character somewhat. Mm-hmm. He he was written to be less bonkers and more sinister, mm-hmm. and he just came across as very bonkers. And therefore, I had to sort of retroactively bonker him up um, <laughs> through the rest of the script. Um, but you know, it was great to be able to work with with people like Andy and and Anna Torf, who was Dorico, who then went on to do Fringe, mm-hmm. and it was great to work with a a, a company that were taking um, uh, gameplay and uh, sorry story and character so seriously, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and I think that's probably one of the reasons I ended up going into the more cinematic side mm-hmm. or, or kind of you know with things things like Heavenly Sword, uh, sorry, from Heavenly Sword into things like Tomb Raider. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it was a really great first experience and, and tough, but I think that's how, yeah, that's how you learn really through, through, through the tough times is when you learn the most, I think. Yeah. We've had, uh, people on before and I mean, even Larry can relate to this, but we had, a. Uh, a female level designer mentioned how she would express ideas that would be just echoed later from another person that wasn't female. Yeah, it's just <laughs> a deeper registry and it sounds better. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, instantly the, the, the feedback would be uh, taken seriously. 
I mean, have you experienced that, especially on something so early in your career and then all the way to Tomb Raider? And uh, how how were you coping with that? And did it bother you at all? Um, I, I, I've definitely experienced it. And I, and I think it's something that that's um, quite common um, for uh, women in the industry. However, I also think there's something to be said for the like the way that ideas churn as well. So, you know, I definitely, um, you know, kind of reach into narrative, but been in, and brought out ideas from from myself and from other other team members that, you know, now could be made to work. But I ha- I've certainly sort of, you know, credited them for that idea, which I guess is the difference. But you know, there, there's always the churn of ideas. Um, and sometimes ideas that didn't work can now can now be made to work, and you know, or, or, or something you've realised a different angle on something that didn't work that will now make it work, and that's just 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 how things sort of churn around. But um, you know, I think it's it's important to kind of give credit to, the, to ideas, but at the same time, it's it's good to not be beholden to who came up with an idea, um, and that it. Yeah, you know, it's more it's more important that it kind of works for the situation, and it, it can be easy to get hung up on that. But it's also easy to get very frustrated by it as well. Um, but uh, certainly, when you're you're kind of working, um, and the and the kind of the creative side where you're having to come up with ideas all the time, you're having to write yourself out of corners. You know, you get used to coming up with ideas, discarding them, coming up with ideas, discarding them. And that gives you a certain robustness. Mm-hmm. So you don't hold on to your ideas too long or you know which ones to, to fight for because you, you have the confidence that you're going to be able to come up with new ideas, that you're going to write, be able to write anyone out of any corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gives you, yeah, as I say, a, a much needed robustness to, to kind of like idea generation and churn. But yeah, I, it, 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 the short answer to your question was yes, it's happened to all of us at some point. But then I, I guess it's probably happened to to um, male level designers as well along the lines because you, you uh, know that I'm a minority ones. <laughs> <laughs> I just repeat what Larry says, but my idea always goes through. I don't know why. He's <laughs> not even a designer. He just walks into the. I just walk meetings. in. It's like, what'd you say, Larry? All right, yeah, I just thought of something. But yeah, I mean, I think your mindset is is the right way to do it. Is like just bet on yourself. Uh, you know, it, it paints you in the corner, but at the same time, you, you creatively have to think about better ideas and and just keep going at it, and just don't count your last one as your best one uh, ever. <laughs> like just keep. But but all, but in. also know which ones are worth fighting right. for, which hills are worth dying on. Really, that's <laughs> um, true. I mean, it's it's a, you know you can still feel like, um, and and let ideas percolate as well because because sometimes in the moment you can just think that the most craziest stuff is perfect, mm-hmm. and, and you know that's exactly what you need to put in there, and you just have to you know you know let that idea percolate before you kind of, um, y- you know, choose that as your hill to die on really, but um. Yeah, I, the, the more the more time you spend generating ideas, the the, the quicker you are at doing it. The, the more robust you are, and and the more open you are, or should be, to other people's ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say there's no such thing as a bad idea. There are loads of bad ideas, but you are supposed to be the kind of the gatekeeper between kind yeah. of good and bad ideas. So, yeah, you, know, you, you kind of just get used to to kind of dealing with it. I think. 
So let's start rolling the conversation into the meat of the episode and start talking about your your experiences writing for a Tomb Raider and kind of like essentially starting the revitalization of the franchise. Uh, first question for you is, did you go seeking the opportunity to write for a Tomb Raider or did they actually bring it to you? No, Adventure found me. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a compliment. Yeah. Minding your own business. They're like, hey, come make this game with us. <laughs> Well, I, I was already doing a bit of work for um, Square Enix over at Idos Montreal on Thief, which I, I kind of um, you know, did some work on in, in the early days. Uh, and um, I, yeah, I was just recommended by my, my producer to Square uh, to Crystal's producer, and they were they were looking for a, a writer to work with them, and I was recommended. Um, and yeah, it, it, I chatted to them on the phone. I did, um, uh, kind of an audition piece, um, uh, which was a couple of cutscenes and some level dialogue and I think a, a journal too. And, and yeah, got, got the gig and, mm -hmm. and sort of went over there, um, to work with them for, for a few weeks, sort of went back to write and, and sort of kept kept that up really and yeah i mean i had i had some ideas uh, about what i um wanted to do with lara they had a you know a fresh approach mm -hmm. they were kind of very open and, and kind of what what they wanted to do what i wanted to do sort of gelled together very naturally i was very impressed by the the artwork for the game and and the way they depicted lara as well um, and, you know, is very characterful and strong and had kind of emotional resonance and, and was just, you know, a beautiful piece of art, but it, it just, it sort of sort of said so much. Um, if you kind of look at the, particularly the box copy, uh, the box, sorry, the box artwork for um, the first Tomb Raider game where she's sort of standing down and she's kind of looking down and she's holding her arm and things like that. And it just like, it was so different from, from what I'd seen before. Uh, in previous kind of Tomb Raider covers, um, you know, I, I found that really, really kind of interesting and challenging. And it never seems that scary at the start, like before you've got all the pressure, before the world knows what's being done and who's doing it. Mm -hmm. It never feels that kind of scary because it's 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 another job and you're you're you know trying to do the best you can. And I've worked on Heavenly Sword and I worked on Mirror's Edge and so I had a I, you know, had a good track record with, with female protagonists mm -hmm. in, in kind of action orientated environments. So I felt that like this was this was a good challenge and the, the team at Crystal that I work with um, which was initially um, Noah Hughes, mainly the creative director, and then me beg begging him for a year for a narrative designer, which which was John Stafford, mm -hmm. um, who who came on a bit later and and was great to work with. And, and John and I uh, did the did the majority of writing for uh, the first Tomb Raider, and then. Um, we we expanded. We well, Crystal expanded the team out. Um, to four for, for Rise of the Tomb Raider, and we had two two writers and two narrative designers for that. And that felt like mad luxury, mm -hmm. having a team of four people that devoted to the narrative. Because I still remember games where it's just me writing, mm -hmm. writing everything from weapon text to, to mm -hmm. kind of cinematics. Mm -hmm. You know, something like Overlord. I did every piece of writing in that game on my own. Um, but now, now we're actually getting you know, t proper teams of, of writers and things like that, which is, which is amazing, wonderful. 
And if I could just take a moment to ask a question on behalf of the uh, students or the, you know, the, the novices who listen to our podcast, not me, I totally know the answer, to this <laughs> but can you walk us through briefly what you would say the difference between a writer in the game industry is and a narrative designer? Because there might be some people who think that the two are synonymous. Um, sure. I mean, they, they, they can be. It sort of really depends. Like I, I worked with narrative design. I mean, narrative designers usually have some interest in writing. So they, they might be kind of writers on the side. Mm -hmm. they, they might have done a bit of writing in the past. They may, have they may have written on other games. They've usually come from a more traditional design background. So whether it's you know level design or mechanics, and they just have a particular interest in, in the narrative side of things. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and you know, narrative designer is a position that is, is kind of existed in games for, for maybe about I think it first started being used about 20 years ago, very lightly, and certainly the last decade it started to be used a bit more. And you know, it, it's now quite common to see, particularly in, in big studios like um, Ubisoft and EA, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, you know, a narrative designer will have one foot in the camp of design, one foot in, in the camp of narrative, as the title suggests. And it, their their role is is very much to um, uh, work on the ways in which the narrative is told. So the way that w the, the player will directly experience the narrative through the game, whether that's through cinematics, level dialogue, secondary narrative, um, you know, mechanics, whatever. And they're, they're often the, the kind of conduit between the writer and or writers and, and the rest of the design team. So on something like Overlord, it was a small enough team for, for me as a writer to go and speak to um, the level designers directly. Uh, and so I was became a sort of narrative designer on that as well. So I was kind of not only working on, on the, the pure story, but I was working on the ways in which the story was communicated to the player through, throughout the game. Um, and so I've worked with some narrative designers that did writing as well on the game, um, uh, such as uh, John, the way I worked with John on Tomb Raider. So he did a lot of second, I did some secondary stuff. He did the, the kind of rest of it. He did a lot of barks. And I, uh, I did quite a bit of the cinematic stuff with that, with him um, and Noah kind of giving feedback. Um, and then on on Rise, I was working on the cinematic stuff. Uh, Rise of the Room? Uh, uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider. Oh, um, <laughs> And um, uh, Philip, our, our second writer we got um, later on, was sort of helping polish up um, some of the the cinematics and you know lots of different bits and pieces cameron who was a narrative designer was working on i think artifact text a lot and some uh, secondary narrative and i think john who is now the the senior narrative designer sort of overseeing it all so um i mean a, a writer usually doesn't get that involved in the design side of things unless it's a small enough team where they, they can do it so we're kind of talking like i guess un, under 30. Um, if there isn't a, a narrative designer, then they can get more directly involved with design. If there is, they'll usually be working kind of hand in hand with the narrative designer. And I've worked with narrative designers that haven't been um, actually doing writing on the game, but they, they've usually, you know, be doing some writing on the side. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're kind of a writer's best friend, really, mm. the designer. So when, so I was really, 
a huge fan when uh with the first two tomb raiders that came out uh back in the 90s right um and uh like it was a really high mark for my playstation and my playstation 2 like those were the games that i really loved playing i took a break a bit uh i i know that they they rebooted uh underworld or, or something like that but it wasn't until uh the the ones that you worked on that i was really excited for because it was more narrative driven and uh yeah, yeah and and just seeing laura all the way back from the very beginning was instantly i was instantly hooked were there yeah. any pressures you were kind of mentioning this before uh not really seeing it at first but when it starts to set in the interests the the magnitude of the project what it meant to reboot such a classic franchise such as this um were there any of that happening during before after well i with tomb raider because there was sort of a controversy quite early on in in the kind of press stuff and i hadn't been announced and then was announced two weeks later mm. it was kind of like opening the door and it's just like flames on the other side of the door uh what oh my god it's going to deal with that yeah. um you know straight off was was quite intense um but uh you know i've never been one to back down from that kind of thing and you know i i um yeah i was i was perfectly willing to kind of talk about it and you know talk about why we we've made particular choices um from a kind of creative standpoint and i think i think that helped mm-hmm. um it was it was something i think took all of us by surprise um and yeah it's amazing how you know many people still you know believe some of the news stories that that kind of came out at that time which had had completely sort of misinterpreted Mm -hmm. what was happening in the game Mm -hmm. based on snippets of a trailer that um and you know when the game came out they actually thought we removed stuff from the game because they they kind of didn't notice what had happened and um so that that was kind of that was sort of pressure from the off but usually by the time a writer is announced on a game it's usually quite far down the line so you've often done a lot of the work Mm -hmm. i mean that's unlike the movie business that tends to um announce writers as soon as they're hired Uh, you know they they probably haven't even done a first draft of the script and they kind of get announced with games it's much later in the process because the pr ramp up can can be years mm-hmm. and so they've got to have these little you know milestones where they you know they announce the composer or they announce the writer and they do some interviews and things like that um so i think by the time i was announced it yeah there was there was some there was some fires to fight so that was that was quite intense um and so i was kind of busy doing that but i mean you guys know what it's like you're so deep in the trenches mm-hmm. and you're so focused on just trying to make the best game possible you sort of don't feel the pressure from outside because there's just so much pressure from inside so it's only when you've sort of finished it do you think oh shit it's review time (laughs) and having been a journalist as well it's sort of it's weird reading reviews of games it's still weird Mm -hmm. because you know i've been in that uh in that position writing them um so yeah i didn't I, I felt pressure at, at kind of different points mm-hmm. and I felt more pressure with the second game. Like I think the second game was harder. It's like the, the, you know, the, the difficult second movie, you know, we, we'd kind of, we had the pressure of expectation 
more because of what we'd done with the first first game and um I, I felt it a lot more and we we were focused on a lot more. The narrative was, was kind of focused on a lot more. You know, even though I think we, we'd done a, a pretty good job with the first game and you think that maybe we get a little bit more freedom and trust. Mm-hmm. No, no, we, we kind of like, I, I don't know whether they were convinced like, oh it, was, oh, it was obviously just a fluke. So we were bound to screw up this time. So they just keep an extra eye on us. But um, we, we had a bigger team, but we were also dealing with, with feedback constantly mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the project and if anyone's interested the GDC talk that we did um, last year uh, the the Tomb Raider panel where there was sort of six of us from like different um, disciplines within the narrative talking about the the kind of process we went through you know we opened up the script of feedback early on which was which was hellish Mm -hmm. um, from a, a kind of writer standpoint because um, you know, it's, it was feedback constantly all the time from about six or seven different departments mm. and, and interesting right. parts. <laughs> it, uh, it was just a continual header in the feedback and that's really, really difficult to, mm. to write under because you're not really getting too much space to kind of be writerly and creative mm-hmm. and without kind of someone looking over your shoulder yeah. or, or several someone with all differing opinions, like a kind of Greek chorus continually commenting on everything you're doing um and so that was very difficult i think it probably helped us avoid like 11th hour problems which mm-hmm. we'd, we'd certainly have with the, with the first game but that's that's really the nature of development i mean brandon you've been through bioshock games so you know you, you know that a lot gets sort of changed and poked and prodded and shaped um you know towards the end uh, of development where it's it's just kind of panic and and just trying to get things sort of working and you know firefighting and solving problems i mean that that happens with narrative as well Mm -hmm. but no matter how early you start thinking about things so um yeah it, it was i'd say that the second game that i felt a lot more a lot more pressure and ex- expectation of that um and uh with the first game i think i it, it felt a little freer and there were only you know there were only two of us kind of working mm-hmm. on it and um yeah and, and it got the eye of sauron what i call the eye of sauron a lot more with the with the second game and the cinematics got the eye of sauron a lot so everyone mm-hmm. wants to comment on those um whether all the writers um on the team yeah, we probably enjoyed our secondary narrative writing more because it got less of the Iosaron. So we could kind of be more kind of fun and, and writerly um, without it kind of go, you know, being filtered through, you know, certain levels of feedback. Uh, and, and the same with the comics as well. So I worked on the, the Tomb Raider comics, uh, the Dark Horse Tomb Raider comics between one and, and two, and I could do a load of stuff in the comics I would have never have got away with in the games. And you know, I could make her funnier, I could kind of put her in uh, crazy situations like... Um, Dressed as Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice fighting bad guys on the London Underground was my favourite situation I got Lara into in the comics. And that would have never happened in the game. It's like, it should have happened in the game, but there's no way I was going to kind of get the power to, to, to get that sort of thing through. Um, but yeah, it, it kind of... It, the comics were a really good space for me to explore a lot of the stuff that we either got cut out of the game or we just didn't have time to put in. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking about creative freedoms, one of the things I, I have to ask, because, you know, I, I, I ask a lot of guests this question, 
but did you find that you enjoyed or like you based any of your characters or you know just even some one-liners off of people that you know in real life or you know did you take some quips at some of your friends through like lines of dialogues through like inside jokes or anything like that um not specifically that i remember because i think what it's almost like once you put something out there in the world, you kind of, you sort of forget about it. I'm always forgetting lines I've written. So that's where I can go back and, and watch like, or watch or play Overlord clips and laugh at the jokes because I've forgotten I've written them. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's sort of like, once you put it out there in the world, it's almost owned by the world. So you sort of forget about it. So of, of course, writers are influenced by everything around them, be it, you know, be it the, the news, be it what they read, um what they you know, they watch who they talk to so it all kind of forms this narrative gumbo in your head so it's never certainly for me i'm never quite sure where anything's come from um i i certainly kind of um thought a lot about my female friendships um when working on the friendship of, of kind of lara and sam and, you know, I kept thinking about, you know, um, my best friend and if she was in that situation, what would I say? What would I do? Would I be able to pick her, pick her up bodily in an emergency situation and kind of that, that sort of thing? Um, but I'm not sure I directly uh, took anything from anyone, but there was, you know, it's, it's you, you can't tell where anything really come from in the narrative, in the narrative gumbo, but I'm sure it was sort of, it was probably you know, partly influenced by the aliens and, and Tomb Raider and uh, Tomb Raider. God, sorry, it's very early in the morning here in the UK. So yeah, no problem. Um, so it's influenced by aliens and Terminator and you know Buffy and things like that. Mm. Um, and you know just just the stuff that I'd enjoyed. Um, you know, both as an adult and both as as a kid growing up. I think. Um, so yeah, I can't. I can never tell where anything's come from, and I'm lucky if I remember anything I've written. Well, you were talking about before about um, a lot of uh, improvising that happens. Uh, do you, <laughs> do you at all interact with the voice actors and and change on the fly when 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 you're in the room and just listening to the lines being spoken or acted, and then have them to fix things? Um. If if I'm allowed in the room, um, it depends. Again, it, it's easier to do with smaller projects. So with with Overlord, I co-directed the audio on the first game, and I directed the audio on the second mm -hmm. game. Um, and it was just because I was there and I could do it. And um, you know, it's a small enough team to go. Well, okay, you're there. You can do it. That's good enough for us. You do it. And um, uh, yeah, I, I cast it. Um, and sort of put together the, the scripts and, and um, you know, directed the, the recording sessions. And yeah, I'm, I'm good friends with the with the guy that plays Null mm -hmm. in the in the Overlord games. You know, through through kind of working on that, through directing on that, and um, it, it was it was a lot of fun to do because, you know, I think writers are you know a little bit sometimes a lot of control freaks mm -hmm. and being able to to kind of guide your writing from from the page to you know further along the line of game of, of you know development and, you know that's that's great to to do and it's something we don't often you know get too involved in mm. um i've been in this studio a few times um when when things are, are written and, and writers really should be there because they can adjust lines on the fly and they can, you know, 
you know sometimes no matter how um you know good you think a line is sometimes when it it's spoken it just won't be right and you and someone needs to be there to fix it and they've got to also understand the context that the line was written for Mm -hmm. so that they can kind of adjust it in the right way and so it is important to have kind of writers there uh yeah I've, i've not been on a game where it was you know the um the idea was to improvise from the off. There has been some improvisation along the way with, with some of them, but um, you know, I know things like the Uncharted games in, with um, particularly one to three, which Amy Hennig worked on, there was a lot of improvisation with the actors that had obviously got very used to their parts. Mm-hmm. And so that, that kind of helps. Um, and certainly with Rise of the Tomb Raider, we uh, opened the script up to the actors early on and, and took in their feedback. So we had to act a, act a kind of reading sessions mm-hmm. uh, much earlier on as well. And obviously Camilla was very um, familiar with Lara and had, had lots of great feedback. Um, and, you know, the, you know, especially with the bigger, bigger games at the moment, they're all using, mm-hmm. um, you know, high-level actors and we're, we're kind of growing a lot of our own actors as well and that then you know a really important resource and i think kind of opening up characters uh to them early on and letting them sort of play around with them a bit can be kind of very beneficial for, for helping you develop that character but it, it again it's, it's something that's not always given that much time for um but i think it's very beneficial when there that is that time for, for kind of actors to to play with characters i want to uh change up the speed at which we are doing things and introduce something that we kind of dropped a couple episodes ago. We're going to play a little game. It's only going to take about a minute. Are you ready? Okay. All right. This is called Fast Five. I'm going to ask you five questions, you know, a decent clip, and I'm going to need fast answers. Okay. All right. Okay. It's still writing related, though. So question number one, what writer influenced you the most? Um, Maybe Joss Whedon. Oh, nice one. Next what game series is the game series that you most enjoy playing? Uh, Dungeon Keeper. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, your favorite hobby? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. I guess watching movies is popular. Because <laughs> like I was going to say, playing games, but then it's all part of everything. I think. Yeah, I, you know, I, I watch a lot of movies. I'm a big film fan, and, and obviously I do film writing now, but yeah, that's... Mm. You know, Go to Fright Fest, that kind of thing. Big horror movie fan. All right, I'll give you three points so far. You get the last two up. The next one is, what's the hardest game that you've ever played? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Just beat beat everything? Or is it just so bad that you just erase it from your memory? She's like, Larry, what was the last game you made? (laughs) I, like, I got through it, but like Vampire the Masquerade uh, Bloodlines oh, at certain oh, points. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, last question, and this is the big one. What game series or franchise did you wish that you had the opportunity to work for? Uh, I, it, it used to be Thief, and then I worked on a Thief game, and it was a, <laughs> it was a, a really chaotic terrible experience in many ways I've stopped wishing now Um, doesn't that like there's there's a lot of people out there who like really love Thief you know like a good friend of mine actually is like Thief is one of his favorite games of all time 
Uh, Which thief are we talking about? It sounds like you're you're talking about the recent thief, right? The first one, probably. Yeah, no, I I was a big thief fan, so it was a it was a a a franchise I wanted to work on, and then um, yeah, I I kind of got to work on it, and it it did not work out well for for a variety of reasons. Um, It was just one. It was just a. A, a, a very chaotic development. I'd like to see um, No One Lives Forever. Um, oh, no. I hope they bring that back, man. Who, who um, owns that one? And I'm, I'm not sure question. anymore, but yeah, that, that, that would be a fun one to work on, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'd love Tim Schafer to, to drop me an email about working on Psychonauts 2. I've dropped enough hints to him i thought you know i was a big, big well you know who, who's working on it right psychonauts too he's a who's that 2k marin guy uh oh, what's his name he was a designer zach his first oh yeah okay you got him right you got him yeah i, do, I don't uh, i don't think i know the zach that well but I, i've been kind of around the studio i am um, uh yeah that that's definitely one i'd you know, he's I, the I creative over there definitely. on that project so Ah, oh, okay. bam! You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Fulfilling dreams on yeah, Tim. Yeah. Tim is the gatekeeper. Yeah, he's the gatekeeper. Yeah. Totally there. So, um, well, I found the trick to reaching him is just show up on a Kickstarter as a heavy donor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, if you break into that two thousand dollars and up tier, <laughs> yeah, you always like hang out with Tim Schafer. Yeah. yeah um so yeah i'm a big, big fan of that but yeah no one lives forever is definitely one i'd I'd like to see um brought back and and that you know they had a lot of fun with that uh but yeah after thief i've, I've kind of stopped wishing <laughs> for things like that but you just you never you kind of you never know really what's um what's going to be sort of coming up next and i you know i, I really enjoyed rebooting mm-hmm. tomb raider and obviously it was something that's happening in movies quite a lot mm-hmm. but it was it was like the first I don't know whether it was the first time it would happen in games, but it felt like the the kind of biggest. It was the reboot biggest one. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's happening a little bit more now. Obviously, Mirror's Edge got rebooted after one game, um, <laughs> uh, which is just, I love the first game. Un- yeah, unexpected decision. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's so. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I've had such fun working on UIPs as well that, you know, I, I kind of really enjoy the challenge of that. And in some ways it's it's quite freeing because you're not necessarily beholden to to a franchise or, or everything that's gone before. Um, although we had mm, somewhat of a blank slate with Tomb Raider, mm-hmm. uh, we, we did start kind of folding in, um, you know, lore from you know the classic games and and kind of story elements from the classic games mm-hmm. and mechanics and things like that but um yeah sorry uh, that, that that fifth one kind of that answer went somewhat astray <laughs> it's all good i'll still give you five points but you do uh you do remind me of the elephant in the room i remember when tomb raider came out and maybe you can talk you can touch on this and we won't be upset if you don't but we would love it if you would <laughs> Uh, I remember the game comes out and it sells like somewhere around 4 million copies. 5 million copies. 5 million copies. And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. Except for Square Enix is like, no, that's, that <laughs> sucks. This is a flop. <laughs> this is, this is, we spent a lot of money on this game. We were expecting it to do, you know, more than, the, or we needed it to do more than this. Whereas fans and people who buy video games are like, no, 4 million copies is excellent. You know, especially considering how many copies did it sell before that? Yeah. I don't think it broke anywhere near 4 million. Yeah. 
and I, I, I think this subject that. too is not just a Tomb Raider subject. It was at the state of the industry where, where we're at that time where AAA companies were ballooning up budgets and stuff, and mm-hmm. like there was just a certain estimate or expectation of how games should be selling, and it was just at a breaking point, in my opinion, on on, yeah. on a success of a game or not, you know. And as as I recall, it hadn't been out that long either. Yeah. It had only been out a few months. Yeah, it was like the first um, month selling really well. And you guys didn't even hit your Steam sale yet. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was yeah. I I think um, I I I don't know really what they they were expecting, and I can't can't really sort of comment you know too much on that because I don't know. I, I don't know what they projected it at, but I know that the crystal were very happy about it. Mm-hmm. And I know it, it was the, fir- the fastest selling title in the franchise. And it, you know, it, it was also a steady seller as well. So it, it kept, uh, it kept on, you know, selling over, over kind of months to come. So it, it actually got over what was expected of, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it did, it did good sales. It went on to, to kind of have a, you know, have a sequel. I think, I, I don't know. It, it 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 was a shame that it that got kind of um, put out there, and I think it was a little bit. Um, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm not upset. It, it, it was a little bit depressing for the team, but yeah. um, it hadn't been out that long. It, it you know went on to do very well. I know Crystal were very happy with it, and they'd sort of put out press releases later on, and you know it it, it sort of you know, kept up its sales as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as far as the, the you know, this, this crystal is concerned, you know, it, it, it sold well. We did a good job. I think it helped, re, you know, reinvigorate the industry in terms of female protagonists as well. Yeah. We, we started seeing, we've seen a lot more come out since then. And I think it, it gave people the kind of confidence to, to put, you know, female characters front and center and, and know that it was still going to be appealing to, to kind of, you know, male players as well. Um, and you know that that seemed to be one of the fear of publishers. We've kind of all read news stories about, um, you know, uh, I think it was Remember Me. The, the Don't Nod guys had so much trouble getting that into um, getting a publishing deal for that, and they had some people, some publishers turning them down because they had a female character and a female kind of mixed mixed race character as their, their protagonist, and being turned down for that specifically. Jeez. And and I, ho- I hope now that 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 wouldn't happen. But, well, um, I mean, thanks yeah. to the Tomb Raider opening the door, and you got games like Horizon Zero Dawn, yeah. you know, getting greenlit coming out. There's another game that I, I feel like artistically is kind of sim- it reminds me of Horizon. It's like a PlayStation game, I think. It looks like uh, what's the girl from Mad Max? But uh, uh Furiosa. Furiosa, yeah. Yeah, like the the character kind of reminds me of her. But it, it has the feel of like a Dark Souls looking game. You know what I'm talking about? Near? She's got blue face paint. Is it near? No. No. Well, n- no, not near Andromeda. Okay. But yeah, it's just, yeah, there's a lot of games coming out that, you know, I think that have a lot to thank Tomb Raider for, especially the reboot. And I will say this if Square Enix was even in the least bit upset about any sort of sales performance, they would have to be quiet once they started seeing all the, the awards <laughs> and accolades yeah. that the game was given for being so great. Are you talking about Hellblade, Larry? Hellblade, thank you. Yeah, that's Ninja Theory. That's Ninja Theory. Yeah, it's Ninja Theory, yeah. So, yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's, out, that's out in August, so that um, yeah, that's definitely one I'm gonna uh, gonna be playing. Yeah, I, yeah, I love what those guys do. Well, I mean, you we're kind of mentioning now you're you're writing for a film, and I mean you've mm-hmm. been uh, jumping around industry. Like, is there a difference that you see uh not just in terms of practice but just the the way things are done and treat it differently um, i mean there's a lot more space for 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 the writer to be writerly in in um film and tv uh and that that's kind of the, one of the big uh, issues with with the way writers are used in games is they're often not given enough time to to write to to kind of rewrite to iterate to react to to kind of the ebb and flow of of game development um, and we because effectively it's like like trying to write a film whilst the film is being shot at the same time <laughs> you know it, it's a hard ask anyway um with with kind of film and tv you get a, a good chunk of time when you're just doing script development where it's just you and your ideas mm-hmm. um and you you get a bit of that in games but you're constantly having to factor in everything else at the same time mm-hmm. um i'd say the narrative literacy in the games industry is lower than than other entertainment forms but that's i'm not saying that to be mean it's just because it's never had to have been that higher because we've not been you know st- uh, story focused for as long and i think what we're starting to do and i think what is the most important is that um we're starting to use all the facets of of um game development to help tell the story you know i, I strongly believe that you know story is not just down to the writer um it, it can be uh, supported by you know virtually every facet of, of the game development team by the art by the mechanics um by the music by the level design um it all can come together to kind of support the the, the narrative of the world um and some of the games that have done that most successfully it's no coincidence that they've had writers mm-hmm. um at, at the helm who are game directors or creative directors like the Uncharted games, like Last of Us, like Bioshock games. It's, you know, they've all had um, writers uh, heading them up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that really helps. Uh, and it, they also, it helps because they can draw in everyone to support the story. And, and it's it's not just about employing writers to get better stories. It's actually about the team as a whole becoming better storytellers. So we all kind of have to... Um, learn how our particular discipline can support story to, to create better stories and games. Um, so it is, it's kind of much more of a, a, of a team effort. Um, with kind of movies and TV, there's just, there's more understanding of story and the way story is told and the way it works. People might have different tastes. They might be terrible about giving feedback, but by and large, there's a, a, they, a, you know, a level of kind of understanding of story and storytelling and why you might be doing a particular thing. Um, there that's not necessarily there in games when i first started out you know finding someone on the you know one other person on the team that cared mm-hmm. and had some understor- uh, understanding about storytelling was was you know a rare and delicious find um <laughs> and you know it, you're getting you're getting more people that, that kind of have an interest in narrative these days but it, it was you know I, I still remember when it was rare i still remember when it was just me doing it um and it's sort of you know, so wonderful to have uh, you know seen that change. Um, you know, just over the time I've been in the industry. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess there's just more. There's more space given over to writing. There's more. There's more. Um, you know, realization that you're not going to get it. 
right first time, that writing is rewriting, that there has to be kind of drafts and iterations. You'll have to be constantly poking and prodding um, at a script, even when, you know, nothing else is happening on the script. Mm -hmm. So, you know, take that into games where, you know, everything is being designed and, and built whilst you're doing it. And you can, you can see kind of what a challenge you're up against there. So it's just getting the writer in early, you know, so they're not, as you say, coming in to fix mistakes later. So getting the writer in early, getting them to, to kind of use their, Nice skills and talents to do the invisible work, to do the, you know, to the ideas and, and the way in which the, the kind of world works. Um, you know, I've, I I've sometimes talk about narrative. I mean, in the past, people have thought, or, or you know, particularly, um, you know, producers uh, thought, okay, writing's cheap and easy. It can just be slotted in somewhere down the line. We'll put some words in. And yeah, you, know, you know, writing is relatively cheap. It depends who you hire, I guess. But um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to change a line, yes, but like writing may be sort of cheap and easy, but it's the glue that holds all together all the expensive parts. Mm -hmm. so therefore, you, you know, you've got to kind of focus on, on kind of getting this glue right and, and pulling everything together. Um, and I think that's where companies have gone wrong in the past. They, they kind of haven't recognized that the narrative needs to pull everything together. So narrative needs to be there at the start. You don't necessarily need to hire a writer. Um, for the whole duration, depending on the kind of game you're working on, but the, you know, they, it's useful to have them there in the room thinking about the the, the reasons why um, narrative works, uh, you know, the way it does, the way the world works, the way it does, the way the characters move. Um, otherwise, you get a situation like I got in Mirror's Edge, where they designed the whole game with no narrative in mind. They had the visuals of the character. They didn't know who they are or why they looked like that. They had movements of the character, but they didn't know why she moved like that. So I had to go in and retroactively explain everything that had no um, kind of narrative motivation behind it. So they didn't know why she moved like that. They didn't know why the world looked like that. And uh, I, so I had to go in and answer all those questions, which was a real challenge, but it's not, I don't, it's not the best way of working really. Mm -hmm. um, so my last question for you before we go into the final segment is what is the most fun part about your job? Um, I, I kind of really like the the pre-production phase on story where there's a lot of ideas and excitement and um, you know, kind of passion being kind of thrown about before the realities of development hit and you're all kind of <laughs> stressed and panicked and crying blood and things like that um yeah i like that kind of that period of quiet where it's all the kind of about the the ideas and the creativity and the character's journey and things like that that is that is good fun um you know wh when you get the opportunity to kind of work with other writers and bounce um ideas off other writers is, is kind of good fun too um and, you know i quite like talking to press but i think being on the other side is still kind of fun and unique uh, you know kind of a unique feeling to me because I've been on on kind of both sides of the table and you know I still uh you know I, I still have some enjoyment of of doing that as well um and yeah so I guess it's it's that it's that kind of quiet highly creative phase at the start for um yeah, the game terrors the terror hits um that that's probably that's probably the most fun, but you know, on something like Overlord, it was fun all the way through, and the the recording sessions were so much fun as well. And um, yeah, and, you know, I think it's it's a shame we we don't have more 
Cuba in games and we don't sort of you know value that as much as say dark and grittiness mm-hmm. uh, which is valued very highly in games but but kind of comedy in games is, is not so much but it is um you know overlord was a delight to work on and i've never i never say that about any other game i worked on but but yeah the overall games were as fun to work on as they are to play which is a a rarity all right well speaking of rarities uh one resource that has now become scarce is time rihanna you've been podcasting with us for over an hour and I'm not even going to tell you the spiel because you know what's coming next. This is your opportunity to talk directly to our audience and tell them something you're excited about or want to promote. The floor is yours. Oh, gosh. Um, well, the uh, only game that I can talk about that I'm working on at the moment is called Lost Words. It's a little um, indie game with sketchbook games here in the UK. And it uh, takes place partly on the pages of a young girl's uh, journal and in a fantasy world of her own creation. And you... You kind of uh, use the, the kind of words as to solve puzzles and you know plat- uh, kind of platform gameplay and kind of bouncing about the pages and interacting with her doodles and then exploring her fantasy world. Uh, and that's been uh, a lot of fun to do. I'm working on that at the moment. Uh, we're also working on a couple of film projects, one of which is, is an adaptation of one of my father's book, We Free Men, which I'm doing with the Henson Company. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I also want to give a, a shout out to, to all the people doing uh, fine work in diversity in games. Um, you know, when we first started talking about diversity in games, it was a lot about gender about just putting women in it but it, it's so much bigger it's about um uh, different ethnicities age sexual orientation ability um and you know it, it needs to be a much wider topic and yeah. uh it, it you know it means so much to to a lot of people and and all the people you know pushing for that uh you you are doing you know great work keep it up it's important well, thank you for representing for everybody who needs their voice heard today. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, here's my game, and here's this, and here's that. So it's, it's always, I take special note when people have, you know, social agendas that they care about. <laughs> so, Mr. Brandon Pham, Ms. Triana Pratchett, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. But I have to say, it's kind of dark. It looks like night. Larry Charles, I'm saying good night. Hey, this is Brandon Pham. Thank you for joining us. See you guys next week. We're done. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.